Okay, you can open your eyes now. How long did that feel like? Ironically, it was 60 seconds. Just 60 seconds of silence. Same amount of time as the little intro or uh, sermon bumper before it. And I wonder if you were brave enough to actually close your eyes, did you feel alone in that moment, even in this room, even in the midst of a worship service, even in the midst of life out there where we very seldom get that silence and solitude? It's proof that we can sneak it into our lives, even in a busy season, even on a busy day, even in a full schedule. I wonder, did that feeling feel unfamiliar to you? Or is that a normal part of your life and rhythm? We're in a series titled The Pace of Grace. Uh, we've been doing this for about three weeks now. This is, brings us up to the halfway point. It's been an interesting three weeks, hasn't it? Uh, it's been difficult uh, to make it out of the house without uh, you know, bundling up and doing everything. I was thrilled to have almost 100 people come out last Sunday in the ground blizzard that we had here. Also delighted to see so many people joining online, and uh, we see you once again. We're glad that you're here. There have been a lot of reasons not to go to church. Uh, today there's negative 10 reasons. That's the wind chill this morning. Um, and uh, yet it's good to be in the house of the Lord. And in this series we're focusing on this reality that Jesus was never in a hurry. He always walked from place to place. He was a three-mile-an-hour God. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we following him if we're always in a hurry? If we keep pace with Jesus, if we walk at the pace of grace, then we can move through life as he did. Now, because uh, we've just had sort of a disjointed start to the year, and some have been and some have not been able to attend, I want to run through the five levels of engagement. It's not too late to make a decision and make a commitment to engage in this content, engage in this sermon series uh, a number of different ways. So I'll move through these briefly because we've already covered this multiple times. Uh, but the first would be to attend all six weeks and to draw that line in the sand. And if today's your first day, you could attend six weeks in a row um, or make that a priority, even if you have to join online. Read scripture daily. I gave the suggestion of reading Luke and Acts together at the beginning of this, um, this new year and to read a chapter a day and get in that habit. Commit to a weekly Sabbath in 2024. We'll talk more in depth about Sabbath next week, um, but that could be a commitment that you would make and, and prioritize. The fourth was to read The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, a book that sort of complements and supplements this series. Some of the content and the overall structure come from that. Um, and so those books are available if you want to pick one up, uh, maybe you already have one. And then the last one would be to share what you're learning, what you're doing as a result of what you're learning with somebody else in a small group setting or just over a cup of coffee um, and put this into your own words and take ownership of it and explain how this is impacting your life and how it's changing your life. And if you would like to, to read that book and, and practice some of these uh, spiritual disciplines in community, there's a class that's starting this Wednesday night. And a number of people have already signed up to be a part of that. Just come to the church, enter through the south doors, and uh, that class will spend six weeks sort of digesting and processing uh, the 
the content of that book and how it relates uh, to this series and to the spiritual life. Now, just to catch you up in case you missed a week, I would encourage you to go back and watch those messages because it is progressive. We started with the problem in week one and how hurry really is a problem. In fact, our bottom line that week was a Dallas Willard quote that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. And then next week we looked at the solution and the solution was the lifestyle of Jesus, adopting the lifestyle of Jesus, the God who was never in a hurry. And if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And right at the end, we talked about that lifestyle and how we see from the text and we see from the New Testament, he was gentle and humble. He was restful and easy and light. That was the lifestyle of Jesus. He was never in a hurry. He was always fiercely present. He was very interruptible. And he didn't consider interruptions to be interruptions. And last but not least, he, he was very faithful in key spiritual disciplines. And so today and the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at some of those key spiritual disciplines that Jesus practiced. And those four spiritual disciplines are silence and solitude, Sabbath-keeping, simplicity, and slowing. Now, somebody's probably thinking, isn't that five, Pastor Mark? Well, yeah, okay, so we're going to focus on the first two of five key spiritual disciplines, but we put silence and solitude together because they really do go hand in hand. They amplify and magnify each other, and silence in solitude is like a double whammy, right? Or experiencing solitude and bringing silence into the mix with that really adds to the mix. But before we dive into silence and solitude today, I want to spend a few minutes just answering that question, what is a spiritual discipline? It's one of those sort of church words that we can throw around, and maybe we've tried to pick some up on context, or maybe we've never heard that phrase before, and you think, discipline? Discipline doesn't sound like much fun. I remember discipline when I was a young person, and I didn't enjoy discipline. And so what does spiritual discipline look like? Is spiritual discipline spiritual punishment? Absolutely not. Just the opposite, actually. And so you might be thinking, well, doesn't that sound sort of like work? Well, it does involve effort and intentionality, but it shouldn't feel like work. It should feel life-giving, not life-taking. And so John Mark Comer describes or defines a spiritual discipline this way. He said, a discipline is any activity I can do by direct effort that will eventually enable me to do that which currently I cannot do by direct effort. So you see where this is going. It's the thing that we can do now that enables us to do the thing we can't do now. But eventually we'll get there. Or I have put it this way before. Do what you can until you can do what you couldn't. The discipline is the thing I can do now. And the New Testament is full of examples of physical training. Paul writes about these in his letter. Jesus gives a few of them. And so a quick, easy example was a year ago, I decided I wanted to do a pull-up. And at the time, I couldn't do a pull-up. It did not matter how hard I tried to do a pull-up. I would just hang from the bar until my hands got tired and I let go. I couldn't pull my body up to bring my chin above the bar. So I did what I could do, and I used bands over the bar 
that would displace some of my weight. And I started with 60 pounds displaced. And I won't tell you what the net was because it's none of your business, but <laughs> I displaced 60 pounds and I could do one pull-up. So I did a pull-up. And then I did two because I could do that. And if I could do one, I could do two. And then I did four and then I did eight. And then I dropped to 50 pounds because now I had built some strength. I, had, I could do something now that I couldn't do before. And I did pull-ups with 50 pounds displaced and then 40 and then 30 and then 20 and then 10. And then I remember the day when I grabbed that bar with no weight displaced and I pulled my chin up above the bar. I had done what I couldn't do until I could do what I previously was not able to do. And that's how disciplines work in this definition, that you do what you can by direct effort so that eventually that will enable you to do what you currently cannot by direct effort. Now let's spiritualize that because there's all kinds of examples on the physical training. If you've ever heard of the Couch to 5K app, it's like if you've never run a step, you can work a 12-week training program that gets you started walking and then gets you started walking quickly and then gets you started jogging and running and eventually you can run a 5K. Well, spiritually, you might say, okay, what's a spiritual parallel? How many of you can recite a chapter of Scripture right now? A couple. Could you do that right off the bat or did you have to start with a verse and then two verses and then a passage and then multiple passages and stick it together and build up to it. And, and so that's an example of a spiritual discipline. Or the ability to pray for an hour might sound like, are you kidding me? Can anybody but Jesus do that? And Yes, but you might need to start with five minutes and then 10 and then 20. And so you do what you can until you can do what you can't. And there's a really magical word that we can apply to spiritual disciplines and to stretching ourselves. It's the word yet. Consider the difference between I can't and I can't yet. Or the difference between I can't do a pull-up and I can't do a pull-up yet. Or I can't recite a chapter of Scripture versus I can't recite a chapter of Scripture yet, yet gives us a finish line, whereas I can't gives us a defeat or a failure. I've often said, don't say I can't because, say I could if. Now, the interesting thing about spiritual disciplines is that Jesus doesn't command them. In fact, most of them that we would apply today in a book like Celebration of Discipline by um, Richard Foster, a phenomenal book on the spiritual disciplines and learning those and seeking to incorporate them in your life, you won't find a lot of scriptural commandments. Now, Sabbath-keeping is a difference there. In the Old Testament, this was commanded. It almost seems like Jesus was anti-Sabbath, but he wasn't at all. He never sinned. So you know he kept the law. He kept the Sabbath. But he doesn't command them. He just does them and says, follow me. Last week, we talked about that invitation to follow him, to watch him and walk with him and see how he does it and work with him and learn with him to do as he did, to live as he lived. And so it is not about coercion and control like the old legalistic system that the scribes and the Pharisees had perfected. It's more about example an invitation. Jesus sets the example. He invites us to follow him and to adopt the lifestyle 
of Jesus. And so that's what we're talking about today. And I will add that if you're not doing these spiritual disciplines, you're leaving a lot on the table in your relationship with Christ. These are all means to an end. They're not the end and of themselves. The, the means to the end, the end is deeper fellowship with Christ, deeper communion with Christ. And what they had done was make all of the disciplines or all of the laws an end in themselves. And so the Sabbath had become an end in itself. And that's what we have to watch for as we seek to incorporate spiritual disciplines in our lives is that we would make them an end of themselves. And then if we don't keep a Sabbath sometime, it's like a slap on the hand from God or something like that because that's the end of itself instead of a means to a deeper fellowship with God. Now back to silence and solitude, the one we're going to focus on today, they do go hand in hand with each other and work well together. So I want to look at a couple of passages from the Gospel of Mark on this. The first comes in chapter 1. So if you need a Bible, you can grab one from the seats in front of you and turn to page 1553. If you have your own Bible, just open up to Mark chapter 1. Now, this past Thanksgiving, we had an opportunity to go down to Silver Dollar City in Branson and spend a couple of days there. And it's a big amusement park with a lot of different rides. One ride that I only did one time is called the Powder Keg. Now, the Powder Keg uh, is, is an interesting ride because as you're getting ready to start and they lift you up onto this platform, you're all strapped in and everything, a voice comes over the speakers and says, sit with your head clear back against the, the cushion behind it. Make sure that your head is back there because you see what the powder keg does, and the reason it's named the powder keg is it has this huge tank of compressed air, and it lets all that air out at once to push the entire roller coaster cart with all the people in it forward, and you accelerate from zero to 55 in a little under two seconds. Naturally, you want to have your head back for that, right? And there's all kinds of warnings. Don't do this if you have upper cervical issues and all of that. Well, the reason I tell you that is because that's kind of how Mark starts his gospel, okay? Now, there's no angelic visitors. There's no genealogies. There's no wise men coming from the east. It's like, boom, we're going. We're talking about Jesus here, okay? He begins with John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus Christ, and the temptation of Christ. He gives each of those about two or three verses. And so 14 verses in, Jesus is beginning his ministry. Very different than Matthew and Luke. And on this first day of ministry, he calls a few disciples, and they're off. He has a busy day. He teaches in a synagogue. He heals somebody in the synagogue, which is a little bit of an issue because that's a Sabbath, and healing seems like work. And so some people are wondering, is this okay? What kind of person would heal somebody on a Sabbath? Then he goes to Peter's house and is hanging out there for a while, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law, who was sick. Some scholars think this is why Peter denied him three times later on, but we're not going to get into that, right? No, you should love your mother-in-law. You should, you should absolutely, I love my mother-in-law, I guarantee it. Um, but that leads to a lot of healing. Word got around. Not only did he heal somebody in the Sabbath, he also healed Peter's mother-in-law. And now people are coming to Peter's home, and he's healing late into the night, we're told. And so I want to pick up in verse 35, because you would expect it to say, so he slept in, had brunch with the disciples, recovered, had a lazy day at home. But that's not at all what verse 35 says, is it? Verse 35 says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went to a solitary place, 
where he prayed. Now, the first thing that catches me there is very early in the morning. I'm a morning person. I love getting up early in the morning. I don't need an alarm to wake up at 4.30 and go get a cup of coffee and sit in my chair and spend an hour or two alone with God. I absolutely love that. Some of you are thinking, is he out of his mind? We should probably get him an appointment or get something checked out. That's not natural. But very early in the morning was likely the best opportunity Jesus was going to have to sneak away, given the circumstances. And it accentuates the priority that he placed on this. And we're told that he went to a solitary place. The English Standard Version says a desolate place. The Greek word there is eremos. Eremos. It's on the screen. Say eremos with me. Eremos. Even sounds kind of lonely, doesn't it? It's a deserted place, an un populated place. In Matthew chapter 3, where Matthew's taking his time getting this story going, we're told that Jesus, after he was baptized, he went into the wilderness. He went into the eremos, same word, where he was alone without food or water for 40 days. And then he was tempted by the enemy. You see, the enemy thought he would be weak. He was strong. He was there to pray. He was there on this day, after that busy day of ministry, he was there to pray, to commune with God, to connect with God. And I love this statement from the Helps Word Studies on Biblos.com. It says, in Scripture, a desert, quote-unquote, is ironically also where God richly grants his presence and provision for those seeking him. The limitless Lord shows himself strong in the limiting scenes of life. Some of you, that's why you're here today, to hear that phrase, that the limitless Lord shows himself strong in the limiting scenes of life. You might even want to take a picture of that with your phone and put that somewhere that you'll remember it when you find yourself in the Aramos, when you find yourself in the desert, in the wilderness. Now, unfortunately, we can't stop there because we got to enter with Pete and the boys in the latest installment of Adventures and Missing the Point. In verse 36, Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Now, can you even imagine interrupting Jesus in prayer? Like, that blows me away. Now, I know it's early in this whole thing, and they still have all these ideas of what the Messiah was going to do and what it was going to be like and what it was going to be like to be one of his right-hand men. And they're thinking, man, we're off to a great start. People are coming. People are getting healed. Where's Jesus? There's a line out the door already. We don't know what to do. Let's go find him. And they go find Jesus in the desert praying, and they blurt out, everyone is looking for you. Do you think that they thought he got lost? Do you think that he thought or didn't know that others would want to be healed? Look at what Jesus says. He replies to them, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. I wonder if that's what he was talking with God about in the Eremos, in the wilderness, when he went to pray. Was he saying, God, is it, is it time to move on? Should I stay another day or two? Sometimes he stays another day or two. Sometimes he moves on. Sometimes he stays for a while. I think he was 
working that out with God in the Mark Sundstrom version. You see, and that's one of the key elements of silence and solitude is that when it's a part of your daily life, it gives you an opportunity to go to God daily for direction, to process life in real time instead of once a week or once a month, but daily, throughout the day. How are things going today? Have I, have I gotten away from you? Have I gotten distracted? Have I gotten overwhelmed? Is it time to reconnect? Is it time to recommune? Is it time to move on? Is it time to stay? And so that's what they did in verse 39. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. He was unswayed by success and popularity in one place. He knew he had a mission, and he was focused on his mission. And I can just see them getting up and walking to the next town and setting that example for us. But I also want us to see that this is for us, not just for Jesus. This is for us, too. And so later in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 6, if you want to flip over there just a couple of pages, in the first part of the chapter, Jesus sends the disciples out, and he gives them instructions, and he tells them to go into various places and to preach the good news and to cast out demons and to heal. And in verse 30, we see that they have encountered some success and some popularity. They're excited about it. In verse 30 and 31, it says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that, he, that they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. You see, their excitement over the success and the popularity of their mission was met by Jesus with a, another invitation, come with me. Notice in Matthew 11, which we looked at last week, it was come to me. Today, in this text, it's come with me. Where? Where are you going, Jesus? To a quiet place, to rest. He knows that they need to rest, to recharge, to reconnect with God and with each other. And I think Jesus also understands the danger of being defined by what we do. I wasn't quite aware of how dangerous this was. And my first station is a senior pastor in ministry, was in West Virginia. And things went very well from the church side of things. We grew pretty significantly, pretty quickly. We baptized a lot of people. And I adopted a an identity that was, I am a successful pastor of a successful growing church. Then we moved to a church in decline where I was in a second seat role, where things were not up and to the right financially or attendance-wise or any other way, where I went from baptizing about 75 people in three years to one in two years. And I didn't know how to reconcile. I thought that what I did really defined me. Maybe the danger that Jesus understands for the disciples. And it brought me pretty low. And I've shared parts of that story before. I don't want to get bogged down in that. But I recognize here what Jesus is doing, saying don't get all caught up in the success and the popularity to the expense of coming away with me to a quiet place, to reconnect, to rest. And so that's what they do in verse 32. They went away by themselves to, in a boat to a solitary place, to an eremos. And so I wonder, where is your solitary place to be with Jesus? And if you don't have one, where could it be? 
Where could your solitary place to be alone with Jesus? Where could that be? Where are the times and places where you can be alone in silence and solitude with God? And is this a part of your daily life? Is this a part of your rhythm? I think we need to divert some time daily. We need to withdraw for a longer period of time weekly, preferably on our Sabbaths. We need to have even extended times and places away. For me, this is early in the morning at home. That's my primary place. But I find moments of silence and solitude in my car. I turn the radio off. I check in with God. I take a deep breath and I blow it out and I say, I release everything and everyone to you, God. I invite your peace and your presence into this present moment. I do that at stoplights sometimes or I intercede for people at stoplights and I enjoy a moment of silence and solitude undistracted. I go for walks with nothing in my ears and I just listen for what God might want to say or for the birds or for whatever else there might be. Monthly, I take a day alone with God and I carve out six or eight hours of time to just be alone with God. And sometimes I'm listening to things, sometimes I'm reviewing journals. Often this might fall on a 24 hours of prayer, which hint, hint, one of those is coming up. This could be a way for you to, to stretch yourself into deeper silence and solitude. To sign up for the 24 hours of prayer, there's a sheet out there or you can go to our events page. And if you normally don't do this, sign up for a half hour. If you normally do a half hour, sign up for an hour. If you normally do an hour, do two. If you normally do a couple hours, stretch yourself into a deeper experience and find some eremos right here in this sanctuary, a quiet place to pray and to be alone with Jesus. And I say, what do you do? Well, all prayer is communication with God, so that can come in the form of his word, that can come in the form of head down, eyes closed, hands folded, that can come in the form of a prayer walk. You can walk up and down the aisles and rows and pray for God, and just the movement sometimes creates a rhythm to the prayer. You can journal, you can think and reflect and listen. I would recommend you do your silence and solitude with your phone off and out of reach if possible. Use a paper Bible instead of a digital Bible where there's other distractions or I want to look this up or I want to do this thing. Have a journal, have a pen, write out what you sense, what you think, what you're wrestling with, what you're pondering with. These are great ways to leverage silence and solitude in your life. Henry Nouwen is a probably one of the more famous thinkers and writers on the subject of spiritual formation. We read a number of his books in seminary. I've read a number of his books outside of seminary. He says this, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time with God to listen to him. And this is true. I found it to be true in my life. In fact, the first half of that is our bottom line today. Without solitude, it's virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. I would encourage you to insert silence there as well, that there has to be some silence. This was missing from me for a long time, the silence thing. I thought my solitude was fine. I was listening to podcasts. I was multitasking. I was getting exercise, running, biking, whatever, with stuff in my ears. And I discovered the beauty of silence and the opportunity for God to do something in silence that is worth so much more than that podcast or that content. 
Jesus did not try to do life and ministry without solitude. Should you? Should I? If Jesus needed this, if this was a priority to the extent that even after a really long day working late into the night, he got up early while it was still dark and went to a solitary place. If it was that important for Jesus, I think it's at least as important for us. So what's your rhythm? What, when, where do you do it or where could you do it? Don't say I can't because. Say I could if. I could if. Pick a time and a place and get started. Make it work for you. Make it work for you. Don't try to do what I do necessarily. I'm an introvert. I'm reflective by nature. Maybe you're an extrovert. You still need solitude even though you're an extrovert. But maybe you need to go be alone in a crowded place. You need to go to a coffee shop and put on some noise-canceling headphones and just spend some time with God in the midst of people. Whatever it is that you need to do, do what you need to do. Because here's the ironic thing. It doesn't work out very well for them. If you read on verse 33 and 34... It's not mission accomplished on this getting alone with Jesus thing. Look what it says. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. I love that compassion. Jesus was so interruptible. Because he had prioritized his time alone with God, when that got messed up, he had compassion for others and grace for himself. And that's what we need to have when our silence and solitude, when the, I, I guarantee you, you make this a priority, life will mess it up for you, right? The kids will get up early or, you know, life will throw you some curveballs or there'll be, you know, something unexpected. And in those unexpected moments, when life seems to conspire against you, have compassion for others and grace for yourselves. Remember, this is a means to a deeper walk with Christ, not an end in and of itself. And I've had to repent for the number of times that I snapped at my kids for interrupting my quiet time. Consider the irony of that. And yet we do that if we're not careful, or we get all bent out of shape because our quiet time got messed up. Have compassion for others. Have grace for yourself. Now, as we prepare to close the service, I just want to throw out there, the Spirit was really moving in worship. I think some of you felt that as well. And it doesn't surprise me. The Spirit is in this place. People are praying for the Spirit to be in this place. And here He is in worship, in teaching, in quiet moments of prayer, in that moment of silence. Maybe you heard God speak to you today. Maybe today's the day to accept Christ. Maybe today's the day to be baptized if you've never been baptized. We have five people being baptized in the second service. So the water's already warm. We have extra towels and shirts, things you can change into. If you have felt the Spirit nudging you to take that step of obedience and baptism, then maybe today is the day. I, I wouldn't want to rule it out. And so as we sing this song, I'm going to be right back here by this door. If you want to be baptized, come and find me. Let's talk about it. If it's not today, we'll fill it next week. If it is today, we'll really celebrate. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for 
the way you lived your life and the invitation for us to follow you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for moving in this place, for inhabiting our praises, for being with us. And we thank you, Father, for loving us, for promising to forgive us, that whether it's the first time that we reach out and say, I'm a sinner in need of your grace, your forgiveness, your salvation, or it's the millionth time, you have said you are faithful to forgive us when we confess our sins. So we come to you today and we confess anything that has come between us. We confess that we need you, Lord. And we ask you to help us to build silence and solitude into our lives, to be closer to you, to experience deeper fellowship with you. Speak to us now and help us to respond in faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.